Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're on the road this week examining worldview-type topics in the Great Lake region. You can follow us at wbez.org slash wvbus or on social media at hashtag wvbus. One of the universal topics we talk about on Worldview is water and access to clean, healthy water. Today we're in Flint, Michigan. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan started just over five years ago. The Flint story shocked the world and made the developed world, particularly in the U.S., take another look at its water supply. We're going to check in on Flint and talk about lessons learned from the water crisis and accountability issues. I'm at the Flint Development Center with Jill Ryan, Executive Director of Freshwater Future. Nice to meet you, Jill. Nice to be here. Thank you. Daryl Sparks is here. He's a student who's participating in the Flint Community Lab, which is a project we'll learn more about. Nice to meet you, Daryl. Hi. And Shelley Sparks is here, Executive Director of the Flint Development Center, where the Flint Community Lab will be located. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, and thanks for being here. Well, I think the question people probably have most about Flint is, is the water safe now? Um, Whenever you read something about Flint, it seems to be a negotiated topic. Um, Jill, do you want to take a crack at that? Well, sure. Uh, I can't speak for the city, but what I can say is without a filter, I don't think it would be safe, especially now while pipe replacements are going on actively out in the community. So when you have that, you dislodge lead that can go into somebody's drinking water. So yes, it's safe if you take some precautions, um, but right now, people might actually want to be drinking bottled water, which is difficult because the bottled water from the state has stopped. Shelly, tell us more about that. Why did they stop the bottled water? How did that factor in? Well, because the state assumes that the water is clean, and it's about convincing the communities that the water is safe. As far as drinking the water, I'm like Jill. I wouldn't drink the water unless I was drinking bottled water. But as far as uh, bathing and things like that, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be that safe, but I do it without the bottled water, but I drink bottled water and I boil my water. When I'm <laughs> is cleaning. there a run on bottled water? I mean, is, is there a prominent bottled water in uh, all the stores and things like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. been for a long time. time. People mm-hmm. have Has, had to get used yeah. to using bottled water. Yeah. yeah, you have to. It's like a matter of survival. Daryl, how about you? I'll say when I was in the piloting program, when I was going into people's houses, um, the first thing I noticed was just the amounts of stacked cases of water in people's homes. Like I asked, when's the last time you used your water? I haven't used my water in like months. I haven't taken a bath in forever. I just use bottled water. They don't cook with it. They don't clean with it. They can't. So then if someone does have a filter, the amount of times I've seen like a filter not working and them not knowing that the filter isn't working because a filter will have like a red blinking light on it. And I'd be like, are you aware that your filter needs to be changed? And uh, there was like a level of information that's supposed to go out when you're receiving all these filters. And uh, the amount of times where someone's like eldered homes or like adults, and if they do have kids in them, they're mostly learning about the filters from their kids. They don't know themselves. Because I've had friends and I've been over and I'm like, hey, your filter is um, blinking red, you need to get a new filter or change that out, or people don't know that you can't have hot water running through your filter, or else that completely messes it all up, you need a new one. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's complicated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's talk about, you mentioned the project you're working on and the lab you're working on. Jill, tell us a little bit about, first of all, Freshwater Future and what your overall theme is here. Sure. 
So Freshwater Future is a Great Lakes organization. We work with community groups across the entire region of Ontario and the eight Great Lakes states. We do that by helping communities make good decisions about their own water. And so that's one reason we're in Flint. We've provided around 1,200 grants alone, over $4 million to help local communities with things like this project. And so here, we're trying to get at a conversation that was started with Shelley's business partner, Mike Harris and I, about how do the kids who are running around this place, this wonderful place, how do they get to ever trust the water, even with a filter? Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, it's a source of stress for the kids because they're worried about not having bottled water or not having safe water all the time. And so over the course of months, we decided that if we could create a testing program where people were able to see someone they trust doing the science, bring in their water, have it tested, talk to that chemist who's doing the analysis, and be able to then do that over a period of time once the pipes are changed. That might begin to create some of that trust because as Shelley was saying, if people are bathing with bottled water, if everything you do requires bottled water, suddenly that becomes such a big part of your life. Mm -hmm. That's really a harm we don't want people to have to continue to live with. And so that's the goal of the lab. Mm -hmm. Why should you bathe with bottled water? Is that an important thing? Well, a couple of reasons. People have had a lot of rashes, yes. and I'll let mm -hmm. Shelley yeah. talk a little about that. <laughs> but the other thing is people are concerned about bacteria because when you're in a public system, when you're on a public water system and you don't use the water, the water sits too long in the pipes and it can grow bacteria that it wouldn't otherwise grow. So in a city like Flint, where very few people are using much water, mm -hmm. it really can cause other problems. And so there are lots of concerns about what could happen from contact. And it's basically a catch-22. How do you get people to use that water if and, it, mm -hmm. it's not useful for the things they want to do? All right. Say more about that, Shelley. Well, to piggyback off of what Jill is saying, it's true because I normally lived in Flint Township where the water crisis didn't impact, basically. So I just bought a house in the city of Flint now. And when I first moved in, they tested my water and they said it was clean and everything. But as you can see, when I first brushed my teeth, I've been living there about like a month now, so it's healing, but it broke my lips out, okay? And what people don't realize, even though you put a filter on, that little round thing with the whole, what is it, the mesh thing that's under there. Right, the aerator. If you don't clear that out as well, then you're going to be still using that bacteria coming through there. So it's more than just a filter. It's more than just uh, being really precautious about the water, but you got to actually change out the little thing under your sink. Wow. I'm in Flint, Michigan, and I'm talking with mm -hmm. Shelley Spark. She's mm -hmm. executive director of the Flint Development Center mm -hmm. and Jill Ryan, executive director of Freshwater Future, mm -hmm. and Daryl Sparks, mm -hmm. a student who's participating in the Flint Community Lab. And uh, we're going to explain, you were kind of getting into the what the Flint Community Lab is mm -hmm. and will do. Mm -hmm. it's, it'll be community residents testing their own water, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yes, we'll have a chemist here. We'll have a fully outfitted water lab, and it will focus on metals, particularly lead, obviously, but other metals as well. People will be able to learn how to take a sample. It's actually quite easy, as Daryl has probably told people. And that process, then, they can bring a sample of water, bring it to the chemist, 
talk about what their concerns are, watch it go through the process because there will be a nice big picture window in the wall of the lab, and then they can see what their results are at the end. And then the other piece is we'll also have education and outreach staff, and so they will be able to help the residents think about what they can do. Do they need to maybe change out their fixtures that may have lead in them? Mm -hmm. Do they have lead pipes in their home? What kind of plan can they create to make sure that this improves? And then once they do some of those things, they can bring another sample back and see where the water is mm -hmm. at that point. And so, Daryl, you're going out and working on the pilot, essentially. What's that been like? You mentioned uh, going into people's houses and seeing so many stacks of water. And what do people say when you tell them that there is going to be community testing of water? Well, initially, when people hear that there's like a group of individuals who's going to come in your house and sample your water, there's already like a red flag. It's just like, oh, okay, what's this? And then we have to immediately tell them like, oh, we're, we're the youth of the community. We're from here. We're not affiliated in any way with the government. This is just all us just putting back into ourselves and really trying to bring back that trust that's been taken from us. And so immediately after hearing that, they're just very welcoming. They're happy to hear that they're finally getting some sort of result or like they're getting some clarity. Who do they mistrust the most? I mean, is it just pretty much any government official or is it the EPA or is it uh, testing authorities? Or I, I imagine there's just blanket mistrust. Yes, blanket mistrust just really just covers it. Like if you're affiliated with the government, which is everyone's just going to be like, oh, can't come in my house. No, thank you. So with this lab, it's really um, a good thing where it's like it's in the community center. It's like that's been like established here for a couple of years now. And like people really know that they can come here and they can look forward to getting some results that they know they can um, trust and be able to depend on without any kind of like bad thoughts that were just into it. So it's just really good to give that comfort. Can you give us some examples of what you've seen with people and circumstances they're in with water? Um, I remember one of the houses I went to was a woman who had to buy a new home because she was like, her last house was like um, in a very bad state. She couldn't use any of her water in her home. And she like, in order for her to keep her kids, she had to like move, she had to get out. And so she had reached out to us to test the water in the system in her home to see if, like, if she's going to get this house that the water is going to be safe and so she can be able to keep her kids, essentially. Uh, so people are buying houses based on how, how their water is tested. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's nods all around. <laughs> um, are there communities people know, well, th that community has bad water? Is that... Yes, it's, it's mm -hmm. more, it's, some communities are more impacted. The north side is by the greatest water. So it would be like from Ballinger Highway on back here would be one of the most impacted areas. The property values are probably really low there. Yeah, next to none. So it's, it makes it hard for them to even get loans or sell their houses. Like they want to buy them out, but they want to give them like 2000 where, where are you going to go with $2,000 to get another house? So because uh, of the who, water and the who, property who value. buys them out for two thousand yeah the banks would if they wanted to leave they were going to give them like was it two to five thousand to leave your home if you wanted to relocate but where can you relocate for that amount of money <laughs> nowhere yeah. Yeah. yeah um all right that doesn't seem fair <laughs> no um, because no. no one in flint did anything mm -hmm. residents mm -hmm. didn't do anything to cause this mm -hmm. problem no but yet they're the ones that are impacted yes 
Can you give me a better picture of what you hope the lab will accomplish? I mean, the, the lab isn't going to resuscitate a, a community like that that's mm-hmm. really impacted. But is there a vision of the end game here, the pipe replacement? There's a big pipe replacement that's going on that should end at the end of the summer. And do you have a vision of where this goes? Well, from my perspective and in talking with Shelley mm-hmm. and Mike and others over time, there's a lot more going on than this lab in the north end of Flint. So this center is an example. You know, as somebody asked me as we walked in today, wow, what's all going on here? So there are already these great trusted centers around the city. And as this sort of program picks up and develops, I think the lab is one key piece that can help ensure that people know, for example, is this a house I can buy because I can trust the water? And so it's just one piece in a broader mix of economic development, of trust, and of building, rebuilding community, um, which is one piece of why this center is here, really wanting to see this community regrow. Mm-hmm. And it is. Yeah. We've seen other pieces mm-hmm. that are coming up around it. So I think that's a big piece of the vision. Shelly? So it's just, like like she said, that's just the water crisis is just one part of it. Before the water crisis, we had uh, people uh, suffering from symptoms of poverty. And so an impoverished community, now they can't drink the water and can't afford the water. So to have a bath, to take a bath, it'll take you about 40 bottles of water, which is like $3 and something each time. So if you got more than one person in that house and you're buying water, you're paying upwards of $100 a month just for water. And then on top of paying your water bill, which can be 300 Well, was the government help ever enough during the water crisis for that kind of thing? I mean, did they ever really just, it's more than inconvenience. It's, yeah. it's like, I don't know how you... How you How do they cover do that inconvenience? Yeah. Well, actually, they did get some money in to help cover the water bills, but the process hasn't started yet. So they just received funding to do that. But funding has come in, and funding has done things like start early childhood programs because of the development of the kids, because lead causes anger and uh, outbursts and different things, as you can see in some of our kids around here, how they're suffering from it. And then they have skin rashes. And so I got with Gold Bond, the company, and uh, with Cheetah Chatham, and they're going to give us money to help with the kids that's having skin problems. So it's a whole bunch of things that goes on in the community that, that happens because of the water crisis. But before the water crisis, we were still suffering from poverty anyway. I wonder if we could speak for a second to accountability for the crisis. And there were headlines recently when uh, former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder got a fellowship at Harvard University, and he was forced to resign his fellowship because of largely this crisis. What do you make of the way people are handling this on the accountability level? Well, I'm an outsider Mm -hmm. from Flint. I don't live here, but I certainly Mm -hmm. think accountability has not been what it should have been. And as an executive director, I always believe that the buck stops on my desk. And I haven't heard any of that from our former governor. And so for me, I'm really glad he's not there Mm -hmm. and going to tell people how other states should be run. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't just how the Flint crisis was handled. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, we had emergency managers, Mm -hmm. which still exist. And that sort of thing that takes away the democratic process from Mm -hmm. a local community, takes away all elected leaders Mm -hmm. and puts in one appointed person, is really a problem. And it led to the Flint crisis, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm glad he won't be taking that position. I really think there needs to be more accountability. Mm -hmm. A lot of charges were recently dropped against some remaining people. And I hope that we see those reinstated where appropriate, mm -hmm. because people really need to be responsible for what happened during this crisis. Um, Shelley? Yeah, not only just because they, they are responsible, but be just because it shows this won't happen anywhere else. Because if you could do this and get rid of a whole bunch of people at one time, you will do it anywhere. So if we don't hold our uh, officials accountable, then this can happen anywhere. And just to be clear about the Michigan Attorney General dropping the charges, mm -hmm. uh, all charges against mm -hmm. elected officials, they say they're reinvestigating the new Attorney General who is a Democrat, mm -hmm. believes that the investigation wasn't going well and they want to kind of just redo everything. Mm -hmm. And they've asked for Rick Snyder's phone and his phone records. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's possible that the charges will come back and there might be something. Mm -hmm. But it seems like there was a lot of confusion around the issue and uh, there mm -hmm. is not a clear path towards accountability, really. Well, I think that's part of the problem that we see is... Yes, we have a new attorney general, a new governor in Michigan, but there still isn't clarity. There still isn't transparency about how things are happening. And there was not transparency when Flint happened. Mm -hmm. And now it was a surprise when the attorney general took those charges back. So yeah. it's not that maybe that wasn't the right legal maneuver, but if we as Michigan residents are going to uh, really be able to trust the state. We need to have some more transparency around yep. these things. Mm -hmm. Daryl, do people follow this? Did anybody you talk to follow what's going on with accountability? I remember when uh, all of this was first going down. I was a freshman in high school, and um, they were talking about, like, levels of, like, city, federal, and in state of just, like, who's accountable, and everyone's just like, oh, this is the governor's fault, or it's the mayor's fault, or you have emergency manager, where it's like, there's, like, levels of, like, stuff you're supposed to do when you're doing, like, a switch of water. Like, I remember hearing when we first were getting switched, I was at a friend's house, and immediately everyone was like, oh, we're going to get switched to the Flint River water? We don't want that. Like, Nobody was on board for it, but we didn't have a say in that, so that's one thing. Then when, when we did do it, um, the reason why there is lead in the water is because of the pipes. And the water is very corrosive. And what you're supposed to do is, how they're supposed to handle that, they're supposed to put corrosive control in the water. And that's where they majorly messed up, because then they have the corrosive water, like eroding all the lead off the pipes, and that's getting into people's water systems, and that's what's really just affecting everybody. And then in school, you had... A pediatrician came in and telling people it's just like how lead is affecting everybody and I'm not really sure that a lot of schools got that. I was fortunate enough to be going to like a really like high-end school at that time and so in terms of like information getting out there and people who are like telling you what's happening because you already have people like marching up saying oh my water I can't drink this look at this it's yellow it's orange it's brown people are still saying oh it's fine when it's not, and no one's really getting consequences for that. So it's just like, all of my friends are just like, well, what do we do? Well, I hope the uh, lab that you're working on here is going to be a success and helps build trust and helps give people the data they need to help with safe water in Flint. 
Thanks very much for joining me. Daryl Sparks is a student who participated in the Flint Community Lab and is going to help with that project. Shelley Sparks is executive director of the Flint Development Center, where the lab will be located, where we are sitting right now. And Jill Ryan is executive director of Freshwater Future. And thanks very much for joining us and talking about what's going on here in Flint. Thanks well, thank for you. having us. And thank you no for problem. caring. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about accountability for the Flint crisis and discuss a civil suit that's pending. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm at the Flint Development Center in Flint, Michigan. We're continuing our tour around the Great Lakes and talking about worldview issues. You can follow us at wbez.org slash wvbus or on social media at hashtag wvbus. We're going to continue talking about accountability and the Flint water crisis five years after it started with Jeremy Orr, staff attorney for Safe Water at the Natural Resources Defense Council. The NRDC is part of a civil suit that is pending. Great to meet you, Jeremy. Can you give us a little overview of the universe of civil suits that is going on about Flint? Because I imagine with a crisis of this nature, there are several out there. Yeah, there are. So you have our, our civil suit, which deals predominantly with the lead service line replacement of all the lead pipes in Flint. Then you have additional uh, lawsuits as well. Uh, there are a couple that deal with recourse that's monetary, right, securing the funds to repair the harm done to the, the residents of Flint. And then there's an additional education lawsuit, which deals with, um, you know, the harms of lead for students within the, the Flint Community Schools District. Tell us more about your lawsuit. It's about the piping and the lead pipes. Yes. So NRDC, along with ACLU of Michigan and uh, a number of local uh, residents who represent the community, uh, sued uh, state of Michigan and the city of Flint to secure funding uh, to replace all the lead service lines in the city of Flint. Uh, that settlement uh, ended up securing about $100 million, $97 million to be exact, to secure safe, affordable, clean drinking water for the people of Flint by replacing these lead service lines uh, over the course of about three years. Um, and how explain how the suit went. What what happened there? So, you know, the suit came about in, I believe, January 2016 was when it was filed. Uh, around 2017, uh, April or, you know, March 2017, a settlement was reached. And that settlement, uh, you know, came with the state, uh, which essentially said, you know, we will concede and secure this money uh, for the replacement of the lead service lines. Yeah, but, I mean, it was a pretty contentious uh, lawsuit, started out a lawsuit, and the defendants eventually came around and settled. Why did there have to be a lawsuit in the first place? If there's a lot of <laughs> lead with pipes in it and there's a water crisis in Flint, why doesn't the government just get the money and start doing it? Right. You know, I think a big part of that uh, is about transparency and accountability. I think we were at a place uh, for a long time uh, where we, you know, we've seen that 
the city and the state and, and, and even the federal government uh, continually denied right the harm that was being done. Uh, then when they finally got caught, you want to limit your liability right for being responsible for it. So it took you know advocates, community folks, in, in a lawsuit to say, you know, hey, you are responsible for it. You need to you know begin to work to repair the damage that you did. And unfortunately, you know, we we live in you know a space where oftentimes people don't want to be accountable for their actions. Uh, so sometimes it takes the force of the law to do that. What were the arguments like in court? Well, as I mentioned, you know, this this was settled, right, out of court. Uh, and I don't think the arguments were too substantive because if you felt as though you had a real substantive argument, you don't settle, right? So right. <laughs> I, I think the main point of... Um, but they were contentious? The government was contentious about it? Uh, absolutely contentious, right? Contentious that one, you know, pointing fingers on whose fault was it, right? Was it the city's fault? Was it the state fault? Was it the federal government's fault, right? Nobody, you know, kind of shoving off accountability to other entities that they felt were responsible. But the other piece of it uh, was just the cost of replacing these lead service lines, right? We're talking $100 million, um, close to $100 million in Flint, right? That has to come from somewhere. And, and no governmental entity really wants to be responsible for spending that kind of money, let alone for uh, you know harm that they've done. And it's also an admission of guilt, right? Although we didn't go through full trial uh, where you got a, a judgment, you know, a, a settlement uh, in often cases, and a lot of, you know, for intents and purposes, is an admission of, of some wrong at the very least. What were the implications for pipe replacement in Flint when they, when this thing wins? What happens after that? Yep. So after the settlement was reached in 2017, shortly after pipe replacement began, right? And part of that is securing contractors and, and program managers to do the work. And it's a whole you know kind of infrastructure that need to be set up to make sure that residents who had lead pipes in their communities and, and in their homes had the infrastructure to uh, say, yes, you know, one, to know that they had lead pipes, two, to get them replaced by the contractors, right? And then three, I think, um, on the back end, make sure that they had the necessary filters and, and education and, and protocol to go along with that process. Is there a any finesse on the the side of the city or the people who are replacing the pipes? Do they want to replace some pipes or do they want to, like, uh, well, you know, certain places should we not replace pipes? Can you cover that in the lawsuit? Do you right. cover yeah. everybody's pipe? Absolutely. And that was what made this lawsuit so important, right? Because it was to replace all the lead pipelines in Flint, right? So the, the, the city doesn't get to pick and choose, you know, who's they replace and who's they don't. If there are lead service lines, they should be replaced, period. And there's a process for that. Uh, there's a statistical model uh, that was developed by the University of Michigan that basically predicts who, you know, most likely has lead service lines, where they're located. Uh, where they should be doing the excavations uh, and where those, you know, replacements should be taking place at. Uh, but yeah, it's not, uh, you know, really optional, right? All these lead service lines need to be replaced and partial lead service lines as well. I'm talking with Jeremy Orr. He's staff attorney for Safe Water at the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're talking about their civil suit that helped get all the lead pipes in Flint replaced. Where are we now? Can you give us a little update on the pipe replacement project? Absolutely. So we're going into phase six, uh, which is the final year of the pipeline replacement projects. We're in the third year, uh, which, you know, the settlement was agreed that this would be done over the course of three years. So by December 31, 2019, all the lead service lines should be replaced. Uh, we're at a point now where I believe in 2017, pipeline replacement began and it was happening at a, at a pretty high rate. The excavations and lead service line replacements were um, happening very swiftly, uh, quickly. They were really accurate. They were digging up and excavating the proper lines and replacing um, you know, lead service lines and partial service lines. 
However, in 2018, NRDC recognized, along with ACLU, recognized that there was a decline in the accuracy of excavations that were taking place. So we went from almost a, you know, probably 80% percentage rate of excavation and, and lead service line replacement in 2017 to somewhere between 10 and 15%. So essentially lines were being dug up that were copper and reburied uh, that didn't need to be replaced. Uh, so we you know, went back to court to get an amendment to the settlement to force the reverting of uh, the original statistical model that we used that was really accurate. Uh, that model has been in place this year since about February. Uh, the lead service line uh, replacement kind of hits are now back up uh, around 70% in, in trending upward, meaning that the lines that are being dug up and excavated are actually 70% accurate uh, lead service lines, um, and it's moving along pretty quickly. So I think now we're somewhere around maybe 80% done with the total uh, lead service line replacement, uh, but there are still you know, definitely uh, excavations and service lines that need to be replaced the rest of this year. Were there any un thought about obstacles in this process? Because I mean, we were just talking about how much knowledge is needed just to negotiate clean water in your home right now in Flint. And uh, when you stir up all the pipes, is there an educational component that went, went along with all this? There is. Yep. So there are a, a number of edu educational components. Uh, one of those is uh, filter education, right? So once your lead service lines have been replaced, um, whenever lead service lines are disrupted, rather partial or, or, or full, uh, there's an upshot, right? Uptick in, in lead because you've disturbed and shaken these pipes. So one of the main things that needs to be done is filter education. So when a pipe is replaced, um, Per this lawsuit, uh, it's required that that resident then gets full-on filter education of how to use your filter. They're given a, a free filter, uh, and they're also given, uh, I think, six months of free cartridges and just a full-on uh, educational process of, of how to use your filters uh, effectively, where to get replacements and, and things like that. Um, you're the staff attorney for Safe Water. What lessons did you draw from this whole thing that you can apply to other places? Absolutely. So on, on our Safe Water Initiative, our primary goal is to secure you know, efficient, uh, affordable, clean drinking water from source to tap uh, nationally. And it's a national program. Uh, and I think one of the main things that we can draw from Flint is just the need for serious infrastructure funding and updates as it relates to you know, upgrading our, our drinking water infrastructure. I mean, it, it's you can't live without drinking water, right? There are a lot of other infrastructure projects that you can you kind of do and, and do without. But I mean, drinking water is our our life source, right? I mean, it's it's we we drink it, we bathe in it, um, you know, we we cook with it, right? So, you know, imagine not being able to access drinking water, let alone not being able to access affordable drinking water, which is a whole other issue. Uh, but I've learned that that Flint is really a a model of, you know, really what not to do on the front end, right, when it comes to making sure that people have access to drinking water as a humanitarian right. Uh, but then on the back end of this is, is making sure that proper funding is actually going into addressing the issues ahead of time for other places so that we don't have another Flint on our hands. In Chicago, we're looking at there's lead pipe replacement going on on a regular basis. Uh, I imagine a lot of other places in the country are doing the same thing. Do you see uh, projects out there that people should know about? As you mentioned, you know, Chicago is one place where, you know, they very well may have the most uh, lead service lines in the country because they were still using lead service lines well after other states and, and you know, municipal governments decided not to use lead. Right. So we're looking at, at possibly the biggest, you know, lead service line replacement in Chicago. Uh, but, you know, speaking of which, we've seen, you know, the city of Flint replace all of their lead service line begin doing it, you know, almost more than a decade ago. I think they finished in 2016. 
And then, you know, in particular in Michigan at the state level, they promulgated the most protective lead and copper rule in the country, uh, which is going to require all lead service lines in the state be replaced on a broad scale, uh, which I think for us uh, at NRDC is, is the model that we'd like to see happening, that, you know, lead service lines be replaced across the board all over the country. And did Michigan put money to that requirement? Are they going to pay for that? Have they showed up for that? That's uh, a pending uh, litigation that's happening right now uh, where utility companies are absolutely, uh, you know, suing to say that we want you know, more money, right? There are definitely financing options at the state and federal level for uh, utility companies to do these replacements, but we have utility companies who are suing to say we want more money, which on our end as NRDC, we think is a, a a bit detrimental when they aren't exhausting, you know, the, the finances that are available to them now. Instead, they're, you know, some are, are holding off on replacing lead service lines when, when that's just the absolute need. But as you mentioned, that is a critical piece of it is making sure that states have funding, uh, making sure that, you know, utility companies or, or municipal governments, you know, publicly owned utilities are making sure that they have the, the ability and resources to do the work as well. Is there a role for the federal government in all this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's, uh, you know, plenty of, of federal funds uh, that deal with drinking water uh, infrastructure. So, for instance, uh, in this you know, Flint settlement that we talked about, uh, which was $97 million, uh, $40 million of that came from uh, water infrastructure uh, funding from the federal government to do this work. So there are you know, absolutely you know, federal funds available to do these infrastructure upgrades. Well, Jeremy Orr, staff attorney for Safe Water at the Natural Resources Defense Council, thanks for joining us and talking about your lawsuit that helped get the pipes changed in Flint. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with one of the global musicians who's based here in Flint. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're on the road this week. You can follow us at wbez.org slash wvbus or on social media at hashtag wvbus. I am at the Flint Development Center in Flint, Michigan, and so is Catalina Maria Johnson. We just returned from Sunfest in London, Ontario, but we cannot get enough of global music, and there is a musician you wanted to talk to in Flint. That's right. That's right. When we started to uh, plan this trip, I was looking at the map. I'm like, how close is Flint to everything else, (laughs) to Dearborn and Ann Arbor and Toronto and uh, London, Ontario? Because a few years back, I had a chance at South by Southwest to see Tunda Olaniran. And I just, it was an amazing performance. uh, It's been described by Tunda, who's here with us, as part performance, part spell, part ritual, and it certainly was. And the music was hard to categorize. I'll, I'll let Tundo Laniran categorize it himself. <laughs> and uh, the choreography was stunning. I found out later that uh, Tunda is, in fact, uh, all of the above, a performance artist, a choreographer, a producer, as well as a musician, and then has a history and a heritage tied into Nigeria. So there's just a fascinating mix. The music, the activism, the performance. 
Tunde, great to meet you. Yes, yeah, nice to meet you both. Thanks for coming to Flint. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, how did you land here in Flint? Uh, I was born here. So my mother is from the Flint area. She was, I think she was born in like a suburb called Davison, which at the time I think was mainly farmland. Now it's definitely like, you know, an established little, little city, but she was here and my dad came here for school and they met and I was born here. And we, we spent some time outside of the U.S., but coming back, you know, definitely Flint is, is my home. So, yeah. What, what do you have to say about that? I mean, everybody talks about Flint and the water crisis and you've spent your whole life here. Um, tell us something about your Flint. Um, you know, I think Flint for me is definitely where I figured out what I wanted to say as an artist. I think Flint has a really strong history of organizing. You know, people wouldn't know about the water crisis if it wasn't for the tradition of organizing that that started in Flint. Flint was one of the first places the working class really expanded their wealth. Um, it was the first community school system in the country, um, one of the first places where, you know, working class people really had a say about how their city looked. And because of that, a lot of so a lot of organizers and activists came to Flint. A lot of people came to the city. And I just think it, it created this really strong tradition of organizing. So I was raised in that tradition. My mother is a labor organizer. She actually works in Chicago um, as, a, as a nursing nurses union organizer right now. But she I was kind of actually talking about being on the street MLK and like all my aunties were revolutionaries. Now that I look back on it, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, we're just going to marches or we're going to meetings or whatever. But <laughs> I think that gave me a different lens to like view the world, you know, and I feel like that influenced how I approached writing music in general. And was music there from the beginning as part of that? Or not, I mean, or? not really. I wasn't really, it wasn't a very musical family. I think my mom, she always says like she wanted to expose me to a lot. So she was always playing music, always playing all kinds of genres. And I feel like I kind of grew up imitating the stuff that I heard, but never thinking of myself as a singer necessarily. Um, it wasn't until I was living in Flint and joined a band and like started playing out at bars and stuff to be like, oh, this is kind of fun. This is cool. I like interacting with the audience and have, say, have, saying something. So, And there's a whole visual kind of element to yeah. your performances. I mean, there were signs in, in South by, I remember there were signs. There were signs. Yeah, we had banners. Yeah, had banners. and those have kind of evolved over time. I think when you're, I mean, I think a lot of artists who are like people of color, um, I would say just like women or femmes, I would say if you identify as queer, I think that music venues, a lot of the music world, but music venues can be a hostile place. You know, you walk into a venue, I think artists typically are kind of undervalued in general in most spaces. But if you aren't white, if you're not male, you're often viewed as not having a lot of technical skill. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to play your instruments. You don't understand how sound tech stuff works. And so it can be an intimidating space. So I kind so I kind of wanted to like make a sign that not only the audience could see, but like the staff, the bartender, the sound engineer, the they saw that too. I'm like, this is the stuff that I'm not okay with at a show. And I feel like it just set the tone for people to say, I don't want, we, we don't want ableism. We don't want sexism. We don't want racism. We don't want colorism, like all those things. Um, and I feel like essentially, like after South by, it, we distilled it down into really just like an invitation to be like kind, brave, and vulnerable. I feel like those are the three things that if you had those in the mix in a space, it would feel safer for people. Um, Cause I think even if you 
maybe are living are in a privileged position, you can be uncomfortable at a, at a show. You maybe you don't want to let loose. So like from the extreme end of letting loose and dancing to also being like, I feel safe walking in the building. I'm not going to be harassed. I feel like all of that stuff, I wanted to try to create that environment. So That's awesome. Um, let's hear some music. What do you want to hear, Catalina? Um, namesake. Cool. I think that's the one I'd like to listen okay. to. Flossing in the metal, the game's in a higher level Dimensions, we in December, you see, we get them together D.I. Rock, first we swang it, bangers, bangers, he's slaying it Show, on point, he's slaying, he wasn't always a spaying Brown boy, slanted eyes, bleach stained sweatshoot Throwing water on me in the middle school restroom Only brown hair in my ninth grade play Thirteen, walking in the streets of UK And I've been given oh some wisdom from the stories that I need to tell And everybody's hoping and scraping and wishing they could be something outside themselves If I can be me Then you can be yourself Might not be easy It's like we're never satisfied It's like we're never satisfied Right That's namesake from Tunde Olaniran, and we're talking with him here in Flint, Michigan. Catalina Maria Johnson is here with me. Um, tell me a story about that song. Yeah, so <laughs> I was working on it um, with a friend, Seth Anderson. He's the co-writer, um, and he sent me the instrumental, and we were working on the really pretty like string part, and we we felt like there was something missing. So we're in his, he, he had done like, I think he does sound for like a church. So they let us kind of work in their studio after hours. So we're working on it. I'm like, I feel like we need a horn or something like really aggressive. We pull up the horn sample. I'm just playing it on the keyboard and we get the, we kind of get the right rhythm. And I didn't realize his dad, I didn't know his dad was like sleeping on a couch kind of in the back of the studio. I'd been there the whole time. I had no idea was there. His dad jumps up like resurrection style, like jumps up on his feet starts doing this wild dance and I'm thinking, okay, this is a good sign. And I actually like use some of his, some of his movements. We like use it in the choreo. Cause I like, will never forget that <laughs> moment. It was just really, really funny. And I felt like, okay, if we do, if that's the reaction we get, then this is going to be a good song. And the video is good. There you've got uh, dancing and choreography yeah. on there. And that's partially the dad waking from a debt. <laughs> well, yeah, on stage, there's a specific move. I should like tell people that when we perform it, but yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of videos, I didn't realize till recently that you produced rapper Mona Haider's yeah. hijabi yes. and directed the video. I directed the video because she's one of those people, the best kind of person that like invites you to do something you never thought you could do. Like, why would I direct a video for you? But she just was like, I'm coming to Flint. I'm eight and a half months pregnant. I'm like, should you be flying? She flew to Flint. She's like, let's just do it. And throughout the day, I'm like, oh, I'm like directing a video. I didn't even realize that's what was happening. And... That we knew the song was really great, and I was really into it, but I was so shocked by what it going viral. I think I was at South by Southwest when it went when she posted it, and it like went viral. So that was just a really wild, incredible experience. She's such a um, talented person, really sweet person too. Well, tell us just a little bit about the influences of your music, and we'll hear another song, I think, too. Um, like what 
what are, what do you pull together? Because you certainly pull a, a lot. Is <laughs> <laughs> everything? Yeah. yeah. You were talking about country music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like with namesake or with a lot of the songs, not all of them, but um, I I try to think of a few different elements. Sometimes it starts with a percussive beat. Sometimes it starts with like a sample I've, I found and like flipped. And then I try to just think of like, what is the hook phrasing that I could sing with no music that would really be like memorable for someone to listen to. Um, and like with Stranger, I think it was the, it's my party. Yeah. Like what would be something you could like easily sing along with? So I think all of my stuff, I want something that's memorable, but then I get bored really easily. And so I just want really aggressive percussion. So I feel like Stranger is a perfect example of very aggressive drums that follow up this really pretty melody. I feel like that's kind of something I gravitate towards kind of unconsciously, but. I don't have to be. I don't have to be a stranger. Talk to me. That's Stranger from Tunde Oloniran, and we're talking with him here in Flint, Michigan, with Catalina Maria Johnson. Um, we were, while the music was playing, we were talking about all the changes. You, you yeah. really moved the changes. Yeah, I mean, for me, that's just my how my brain works. I think I just, I get bored really easily, but I also write a lot of the music thinking about performing it and like how fun it is to have, you know, peaks and valleys in a performance and just so that's probably a part of it. But then, you know, on the record, I think if people listen to the record, there are songs that are like mainly piano and choir. I feel like if you listen to Stranger, there's app, there's going to be one song for sure that you like absolutely love because I, I try to put a lot of just my emotion into it and also like bring the things that really move me musically like into the album. So that so Stranger is like an aggressive song, but there's all kinds of stuff on the record. And that one has also kind of like all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, we are right next to Detroit, kind of like a mm. a soul mm. kind of sound. Yeah, like, there's a lot of those influences. I think I wasn't directly influenced by Motown in the way that I was like, I studied these artists, but I feel like if you grow up in Michigan, like that's something that you always hear. Um, but my mom played a lot of jazz, a lot of pop music, so. For me, just a hooky something, some phrase, some repetitive m melodic phrase that is just fun to sing. Um, I wanted to kind of have that in a lot of the tracks on Stranger. That was important to me, especially touring my previous record. There's a lot of rap and it was like broken up. And I'm like, I want to be able to really sing to people with this record with Stranger. So every song, even if it is like upbeat, there's a, at least one or two parts that I can just sing to the audience. So. Well, let's try to sneak one more song in. Um, let's hear the song, I'm Here. What, tell, tell us something about that one. So that, so, you know, I was just talking about this with my dancer. Like, we do all these amazing tours, and we're all over the world, and you come home to a city like Flint, which is like a small city. Sometimes it can feel sad, you know, because I think that Flint, even though there's actually a lot of resources in the city, our arts are unfortunately, I don't think, funded and supported and invested in the way that they really should be. 
so a lot of artists have to kind of make their fortune, quote unquote, outside of the city. You know, I, I work a lot more outside of Flint than I do in it. And that's that's sad. But I think anyone from like a smaller city can relate to the feeling of like, should I leave and feel guilty about abandoning the city or should I stay and feel like I'm trapped in this town? You know, so um, part of that feeling was in I'm here. But then also like living in a place where I think we've lost a lot of trust in our government and, and a lot of our institutions and the idea is like nothing really seems to change. We do the same things we've we've done, and we're kind of running into the same problems. And I think the water crisis was an example of our local and state government continually kind of like deciding to be on the wrong side of history about a lot of things. So the song is is about that, but then it's also the idea of just like traveling to and being being excited by new places, but always kind of feeling a little alone because we're not living there. We're not from those places that we're in. Um, Tunde Olaniran, uh, Catalina Maria Johnson, thanks a lot for joining me here in Flint, Michigan. We're going to go out on I'm Here, and I want to remind you that coming up tomorrow, uh, we'll be broadcasting from the Islamic Center of America. It's in Dearborn, Michigan. It's the largest mosque in North America. Hope you can join us for that uh, live broadcast tomorrow. And you can follow us at wbez.org slash wvbus or on social media at hashtag wvbus. There's lots of fun pictures there. Thanks a lot to Shelley Sparks, the executive director of the Flint Development Center, for hosting us here in Flint. It's been awesome. And thank you to Steve Bynum and Julian Haida for producing this program. Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for uh, helping produce the program. And Jay Kelly Wyatt Sullivan was our technical engineer for the trip. Thanks very much. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Information continues to come at us faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.